I believe. I believe in evolution. I study fossils of humans, apes, and monkeys, and I teach college students about their place in nature. I believe only what I can see with my eyes. I believe that addiction can kill me, but that writing and performing will save me. I believe in the power to forget. I believe in the human soul and its ability to connect with others. I believe in the transformative power of a single moment. I believe that the mind can heal. I believe that there is no God. I'm beyond atheism. I believe, I believe in, in life. Nothing. I don't believe in curses. I believe that curse. our mind can make up anything it wants to, and that makes anything. I believe right. there is a better world after this one. I believe that if you live a good life, I believe you that will there are several heaven. ways to get to God. There can't just be one. That doesn't seem. I fair. believe in all faiths, all beliefs, as I search for peace, enlightenment, and harmony. I believe in everything. I believe that Jesus was a good man. Nothing I believe more. that people can be moral without God. I believe we are all divine, all beings. I believe that God has abandoned us. I believe, I believe that, that He doesn't care or inability to have next to I believe it is always I believe in I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the dead, the life everlasting. Can I hear an amen? Amen. That's the most ancient creed in the Christian faith, and it's gonna become our best friend when we finish our study through the Apostles' Creed. Just saying it may have evoked different types of memories. For many of you, your reaction might be like uh, Paul Joyle, one of our life group leaders, when we were preparing for our life group portion of this study this week and met together to talk about the Apostles' Creed. Paul grew up in a creedal church and quoted it while he thought about all sorts of other things. The upcoming baseball game. Did you ever think about girls sitting someplace else in the auditorium while you were spitting out this stuff that was, was almost subconscious. And so for that kind of a person, it may represent something dry and stagnant version of Christianity that you've outgrown. For others of you, it might evoke great memories of very meaningful liturgy that uh, in some ways you wish evangelical churches would capture. Others of you, like me, who grew up in the free church tradition, for us, the Apostles' Creed is completely irrelevant. It's, it's something other people practice, people that we don't share very important doctrines with. Some of us might even get nervous. For instance, yes, I did say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and I want to tell you I do. In fact, the Nicene Creed grows that section. I believe in one holy apostolic Catholic church, the unique marks of the people of God. And when we talk about that, you're going to come to cherish that term as it was originally intended before it became the tag of, of the Roman church. 
You might be thinking, why do we even need creeds when we have the scripture? Isn't the scripture enough? Why do we need creeds? Well, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles, but in the first centuries of the church, this creed grew as a way of distilling what the apostles actually taught long before the scriptures were written by Paul and Peter and others. Creeds had already found their way into the church as a way of memorizing, memorializing, teaching, and staying true to the teachings of Jesus as passed down through the apostles. Let me take you just to a couple of scriptures. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is one example of moments where Paul uses what appears to be a, a standardized statement a creed that they would be familiar with. And this centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Another great example of what was likely a pre-existing creed in the early church is Colossians chapter 1. Turn there with me. Beginning at verse 15 is a beautifully structured Hebrew-style poem, a hymn that actually has two stanzas and a primary premise. There's a mirrored use of language that is lost somewhat in the translation into English. The main idea, the hub in this poem is that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's the primary doctrine. And verse one says that Jesus is the firstborn, which means he is supreme. It's the position firstborn. He is the primogenitor over creation. And after we hit the primary theme, we will see that he is also the primogenitor, the firstborn over the new creation. Let's now read it together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Most likely a preexistent creed of the early church. Let's just look at one more verse, and that's Romans chapter 6. 
verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed, and this is the phrase, the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Paul here and in many other areas, in fact, what often provoked his epistles was that error had found its way into the church. People began drifting from the truth. When he says, if grace abounds, should we just continue to sin? There was actually a teaching going on that taught more sin, more grace. That was one of the heresies. And Paul's addressing it. And he's referring back to this, the form of teaching that you received. And that Greek word, form of teaching, first of all, teaching is the same word as doctrine, and form is the same word for standardized or structured. And so what he is referring to is the body of teaching, the standardized body of teaching that had been formed and passed on to them as it had been passed on to every other uh, early believer. My point is that from the very beginning, this has been a way They rehearsed and practiced and taught and stayed true to the core values. For instance, in the third century in Rome, before you were baptized, the minister would say, do you believe in God? And the person would respond, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And they would say, do you believe in Jesus? And the person about to be baptized would say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and on and on. And eventually that became known as the Apostles' Creed. So what we are coming back to when we look at the Apostles' Creed is the purest, most basic teaching of true Christian faith since its inception. That's how important this is. For me, Coming to some of the traditions of the church, practicing Advent, for instance. Um, In my last church, we began practicing Lent as a way of preparing for Easter season. For me, these traditions came later, and so they're very precious to me. And in the same way, committing to look at this Apostles' Creed for the first time and teaching it for me has been a very interesting experience. I find myself cherishing it, because when I come at it, I don't hear dead vain repetition. I used to hear it that way when I visited churches with friends where people just mumbled through it and there seemed to be no life coming from it. But when I come at it now, I see not just a creed. I see a story. In fact, it's the story. It begins in Genesis with the Father. It begins with creation, almighty God, creator of all things. It ends with the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. That's the book of Revelation and the restoration of all things. And at the heart of it, at the heart of it is the event that history before it led to and history after it flowed from. And that's the coming of Christ, the cross. The Apostles' Creed is actually the gospel. Think about that. Many of you say to yourselves, when people ask you what Christians believe, I get all tongue-tied, I don't know what to say. Some of you, without knowing it, Paul was being prepared for his 
job in sharing the gospel with university students all that time back then when he was mindlessly quoting the Apostles' Creed because what he was saying, whether he understood it or not, is the gospel. It's creation, brokenness, need for redemption. It's the coming of Christ into this world. It's the restoration. It's the birth of this new community that Jesus said he would build, the church, which creates the communion of saints in which we experience the forgiveness of sins and look forward to that blessed hope of the coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. It's the gospel, and it's beautiful. Now what I wanna do is just point out three ways that the early church used this creed. The first way the Apostles' Creed was used was for evangelizing. It's a beautifully complete gospel, unlike ours, where we try to give people the minimum information in order to know they're going to heaven when they die. That's not the point. It's concise, but it's complete. And so it was a way of evangelizing. And I really mean it. Those of you that grew up with this and thought it was dead, what would you actually tell somebody if they said, what do Christians believe? Well, we believe God the Father, Almighty, created everything. Think about the beautiful tool that you have, just like the early church had. Second, it was used to teach new believers the core doctrines of the church. They worked through them. Each point, as the body continued to grow together, was expanded through the teaching of Scripture. Not only a person's baptism, but eventually became the standard form that the body would use before uh, the agape feast, before they celebrated communion together. And so it became part of the life of the early church. And then the third thing, and this is very important, and if there was ever a need for this It's today, the Apostles' Creed protected and guarded the church from false teaching. And perhaps as we go through the various doctrines, we'll also be able to take a little bit of time and talk about the various errors that emerged in the early years of the church, some of which still plague the church today. Many of those groups that we would characterize as cults actually hold to some of the most ancient heresies But even more so, today, we have reached a point as a culture where whatever you believe is fine. It's more the act of believing that matters, not what you believe. That's the new rule of tolerance. Everybody's belief is not only welcome, everybody's belief is valid. And so therefore, if you're among the major world religions that profess, as Christianity does, to be the way, in fact, quotes Jesus, its founder, or saying that himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we are breaking the one moral standard of a tolerant culture. Because we are saying there's one truth, there's one faith. And in order to hold true to that in a world that argues the need not just to respect other people but to validate their beliefs, the Apostles' Creed holds us true as it has for 2,000 years. Keeps holding us firm, holding us back to the truth. It's a gift. So that's where we're going. And with the remainder of time we have today, we're just gonna look at the first two words of the creed. And what are those words? I believe. The nature of faith, uh, as Scripture teaches it, but is also implied in the creed itself. 
English is not a very creative or inventive language. It's stolen a lot of its best words from Romance languages and from German. Our English is an amalgamation just like our culture is. We say the word love for about 12 different emotions. Same thing is for I believe. The, the lowest level of I believe might fall into the idea of I think so. Honey, did you remember to lock the apartment? I believe I locked the apartment. I, I think so. The next level of belief is more like I'm of the opinion. I believe the Red Sox are going to have a great season. I believe the Red Sox are building a great roster. I'm of the opinion that the Red Sox are, are going to have a good season, but time will tell. And a little debate, you know, over a hot dog might convince me otherwise. Then there's the level of belief that is conviction. It, it's something you want to take a stand on. It, it in some way shapes your choices and your decisions. And the level that that often slips into is your willingness to stake your life on it. I'm thinking of the story of Dr. Charles Finley, who before they discovered the source of yellow fever in the tropics, was personally convinced that yellow fever was transmitted by mosquitoes. But nobody believed him. They thought it was transmitted by human contact. And so he was so convinced that he closed himself up with those with yellow fever, caring for them for 10 days without any protection, but they were closed off from any mosquitoes. And he didn't get the disease. And because he was willing to stake his life on that belief, we now know and have been able to cure and, and deal with yellow fever. That's a pretty big level the epitome. Isn't that the, like the top level? And isn't that the kind of faith we need to have in Jesus that it matters so much that when push comes to shove, we'll stake our life on it? Well, I think so. I think that's part of the belief, but I actually think there's another level. That supreme level of faith, according to the Bible, is faith of a child. In fact, Jesus uh, put it this way in Matthew. Let's say this together. He called a little child to him, and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What was Jesus getting at there? There are all sorts of examples of different levels of faith in the Gospels. Jesus' own observation, the centurion, the man of great faith, the greatest faith he'd seen in all of Israel. And of course, he healed the servant. And there's the faith of the father, of the demon-possessed son. Jesus says to him, how long has he been this way? Almost like a doctor diagnosing, but a spiritual physician. And the father says, well, since he was a youth, and very often the spirit will throw him into the fire. And then the father just exasperated, looks at Jesus and says, do something if you can. Jesus uses a little sarcasm. If you can. Anything's possible if you have faith. And that man's faith was not the great faith of the centurion. It was characterized by his own confession. And it says he exclaimed it, exclaimed it like he was so frustrated to admit this when he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I have faith, but I have doubts too. And yet, Jesus healed his son and the lesson we learn about that is that it's not about the strength of our faith. 
It's about the direction of our faith. It's not about how great your faith is. It's what you put your faith in, and that's what the Apostles' Creed teaches us. It's what I say I believe in that matters, not just that I believe, whether with great faith or weak faith. But then Jesus brings this child and places the child in front of his disciples in the crowd and says, if you really want to come to the Father, which is the ultimate result of our faith, says you need to become like a child. So in some way, Jesus is saying that's the ultimate level. That's uber faith. Not great reasoned out faith that I'm willing to stake my life on. That's pretty great faith. But there's a whole other level like a child. What's a child's faith like? And how do we achieve it? Because a child's faith is based on inexperience. A child's faith is based on ignorance. What you need to picture is when that child takes that leap off of a wall and is suspended for what for them seems an eternity into the parent's arms. The child's willingness to trust that mom or dad will catch them. It's that sense of faith. But yet we're not naive. We're not ignorant. We're not unstudied. We have gone through a path of looking at these truths and been reasonably convinced about them that we're willing to make a claim on them. How do we move from that to childlike faith? Because we can't suspend that, nor should we. The point Jesus is getting at is that faith has to move beyond debating about it. And your constant tendency to try to convince one another about the truth of it. There's a point where we have to stop the debate and just fall into his arms. There's a point where we just make it about the relationship. It's like the difference between the guy who's 35 years old and hasn't gotten married yet because he can't make the jump. I had a very good friend who was like this. And he had this list and he kept dating girls and then he confided with all of us, she's not, I'm not gonna marry her. He was just debating and debating and then he finally grew up He found the best woman ever, ever. She didn't look like his list. One of the best women Vit and I know. And he made that leap. He he moved past the convincing and the debating and the arguing. And he just jumped with his heart. See, there's a point where faith has to become that. It has to move from factual to relational. And it happens that the creed helps us understand that. Because for the first thousand years of the church, Eastern Europe only understood this creed in Latin. In fact, the very word creed comes from the first word of the Apostles' Creed. Credo in Deum. I believe in God. And the word credo in Latin is not just about acknowledgement or being of the opinion of. Quite literally, it means I trust in. And the Greek word that Paul uses in the book of Acts, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is about trusting in. I'm putting my hope, I'm putting my confidence in. I am trusting in reflects that notion of moving beyond the debate and just making the leap into relationship. So let me just talk about four aspects of this type of faith. 
And now this comes from a book that we handed out to every life group leader. It's a book by Alistair McGrath, simply called I Believe. It's about the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes you just find something, the best thing to do is just put it out there. So I wanna share McGrath's uh, statements. The first is that faith means assent. It is about truth. It's not just that you believe, it's what you believe in. And when I say I'm putting my trust in these things, you're stating these to be truth. That's so critical because we are not saying this is my truth or I'm of the opinion that God created and that Jesus is my savior. And I'm of the opinion of these things, but I, I, could, I could change. These are facts that I'm assenting to. This is the truth on which I'm building my life. The second thing that McGrath says is faith means trust. We believe in someone, not just in truth. We believe in a person. We believe in a God who exists in three persons, at the heart of which is our belief in Jesus Christ. It is about trust. It's that faith as a child idea. The third aspect of Christian faith embodied in the creed is that faith means commitment. In the scripture we see clearly Jesus' idea of that. He made as a central theme in his relationship with his followers, who do you believe that I am? In other words, his ministry with his disciples was all about their belief in him, all the signs, all the evidence, all the teaching, and once they got that right and they understand who he was, he was able to then go and let them be witnesses of what he, who he was, had come to do. So the cross made sense because of who Christ was. But in the midst of that, he needed to say to them, if you're gonna really follow me, you need to take up your cross. Ultimately, and especially in a culture like ours that says all truth is valid, to lay hold of any truth as exclusive takes commitment, takes courage. But as the author of Hebrews, I believe, said, uh, you have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, and that's us. You know, we haven't lost our lives for it, but there are people, and there were those in the first century who when they said this creed, when they were baptized, knew they were tossing their hat in with a band of martyrs. You see, if Jesus is real, then he's worth every part of us, or he's worth nothing at all. There's that old phrase, Jesus is either Lord of everything or he's not Lord at all. And that's what faith requires. Faith requires commitment to it. And that leads us to the fourth thing McGrath talks about, and that faith means obedience. If I believe these things, it impacts how I live. And we're gonna make every attempt each week to not just help you understand the teaching, but to allow you to wrestle with the implications and how it should affect your life. Because obedience is part of faith. That's how James put it. Bring up that verse, Derek, as we wrap up here. James 2, let's say this together. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James' point was that we're saved by grace but it's not a cheap grace. 
that if we really have put our faith and trust in Christ, it will, it will result in a life of obedience. Otherwise, it's just empty assent. And that's not biblical faith. It brings about change in our life. One final illustration, and then we're gonna turn to communion and wrap up. It's cold again this morning, but not long from now. The snow's gonna melt, we're gonna see buds, and the trees are gonna have that little bit of green on them, and then there'll be some day that you walk out and your favorite tree is gonna look something like this. That's going to happen. It's gonna be awesome. I got this illustration idea from Anna and David who went to Casting Crowns concert uh, last week and uh, their new album is themed after uh, the idea I'm gonna share with you. I love trees. We have a couple beautiful trees that we lounge under. There's a couple in our, our front yard where there's a, what's that called? Yeah, a hammock. We need a new, okay, thanks. Can we talk about shopping later? Is that okay? Got a hammock hanging under it. There's one part of the day where the sun is moving westward. There's this one tree that shades the whole deck. It's beautiful. I just love it. Of course, we're not looking at the whole tree here. Let's get a better view of the, of the whole thing. That's a better look at it, isn't it? Uh, and of course, I'm still not showing you the whole tree, am I? There's another part of the tree that if it wasn't there, there would not be trunk and branches. This is actually what the whole tree looks like. More of an artist rendition, but I got approval from our local urban forestry expert, Derek, who's up actually running the slides today. Checked with Derek about it. One of the things I learned marrying into the family of a landscape architect was how he treated trees that were infected. You'd see a tree in the trunk had all sorts of stuff growing on it, and up towards the top there were branches that were withering and were dying, and my original thought would have been, well, go up and fix that. Let's treat the trunk. Let's go up and treat those branches. But instead, what Papa would do is take a spike of nutrients or medicine and spike it down at the roots. Because when the roots are healthy, the tree's healthy. Now, here's my challenge to you, and this is what I hope will really motivate you about this series. For many of us, our Christian faith is like the top part of the tree. We love the fruit, the benefits of it. We love the shade. We love the experience of it. But it's all about the experiential side of it, which cannot really exist. It's not real if you don't have a truly healthy root system. That's what this series is about. We're going to make sure our root system, what we believe is firmly grounded in truth, so that the whole experience, the whole Christian experience is exactly what it's meant to be. Because you can't have it the other way around. You can't just focus on the part you see and the part you love and the part that benefits you. Because without having that foundation, all of that will someday fail you. Let's do it together, let's dig deep. Let's set our roots in the eternal truth. That's what Psalm 1 is talking about. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That's what we're going to be about. And I'm glad we're taking a few months to do it. It should be fun. We're going to turn towards communion now. Let's stand together.
And let's say the Apostles' Creed as we come to the table. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, as we celebrate the table, this gift you gave us to commemorate what is at the centerpiece of history, at the center of all that we believe, the coming of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, the the purchasing of our debt to sin so that we might receive forgiveness in Christ, and the resurrection by which we are, are birthed into a new life as your children. Father, we rejoice in that, and we remember with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.